when I first took on the role of the leader of the Labour Party, for some reason, I had this preconceived idea I needed to be able to make the ultimate decision myself. I've become a lot better now at seeking guidance and advice from other people. And I wish I'd done that sooner. I think I thought it was a bit of a weakness mm. or somehow because I was already feeling a little bit insecure about being a leader, that if I asked too many people for help and assistance, that was somehow proof that I wasn't really up to the challenge. I recognise that as a leader, it's actually pretty sensible to seek guidance from other people who've been there and done it before or just people you trust because that's going to help you not only make a better decision but to be a better decision maker because you haven't made it by yourself. Hello and welcome to the new series of Realising Your Potential. In this very special series I have the pleasure of speaking to inspiring women about their leadership journeys. From politicians to project managers, executive coaches to presenters, these women have done some incredible things and make for fascinating conversations. We discuss the challenges they've faced, the lessons they've learned, and explore what organisations can do to drive greater gender equality. And that's exactly what this podcast is all about, sharing perspectives and ways of thinking that educate, empower, and celebrate. So join me as we dive into some great conversations with amazing people from all walks of life. I can't wait to see what we discover together. This week's guest is Rebecca White, who is the leader of the Tasmanian Labor Party and MP for the state seat of Lyons. She is known for being practical, hardworking and passionate. And this certainly came across as she shared her story with me. We talk about the gender stereotypes Rebecca faced when first starting out in politics, why she gets grumpy when people say quotas aren't a good thing, speaking in parliament with her baby and the pivotal moment that gave her the confidence to run for office. It's a humble and empowering conversation that you won't want to miss. Thank you so much for joining the Accolade Wines Realising Your Potential podcast series. I'm very delighted to speak to you today. Thanks for having me. I just want to start off with a little bit about yourself, your background, your career and how you've got to where you are today. So I'm a country girl, grew up on a farm at a place called Nugent, which is about an hour out of Hobart. Grew up milking cows and chasing pigs around and dairy cattle and beef cattle and ended up in politics as the opposition leader here in Tasmania. I'm a mum, I've got two beautiful kids, and really life this year has been quite a roller coaster. It's been an early election, heavily pregnant, losing an election, then losing the leadership, having a baby, and then becoming the opposition leader once again because of some uh, internal issues that happened within the party. So this year has really been one out of the box. What you've just said about this year for you being quite different to how you planned. How did you navigate through all of that change? It was entirely unplanned. The only thing that was planned was we knew we were having a baby. The rest of it was completely unplanned. And how do I deal with that? I've thought about that a lot because it's been quite a challenging time mentally, emotionally and physically this year. But I felt more resilient than I have for a really long time. And I wondered, is it the pregnancy hormones? Is it the hormones that are making me stronger? But I was talking to a friend about this and she described it as you've just been through so much that now you've just got the slitty eyed determination 
that means you're going to get it done. And I think that's probably true. <laughs> and she tells me that her daughter looks at her sometimes and says, you've got your slitty eyes, mum, which is you just got that look in your eye that you just know you have to, you have to make it work. There's no plan B. You've just got to get this done. Being pregnant, losing an election, losing leadership role, having a baby and then becoming the leader again, um, were there moments of self-doubt? I think that's pretty common for lots of women that I speak with. And certainly when I became the leader in 2017, it was a case of fake it till you make it because I certainly had huge amounts of self-doubt. I didn't really know if I was ready and I guess that experience gave me some confidence for the second time around to be honest that when the opportunity presented again completely unexpected not at all in my plan or anyone else's plan I'd argue probably it was very unexpected that this time around I had more confidence I knew what it was going to take and I felt more comfortable with the idea of it so I did feel I was capable and I could trust myself to take that step again, even though it was not something I'd planned to do. In terms of women and self-confidence, sometimes, I mean, I've felt it many times, but sometimes I think we're never really ready. That question of, it's a bit like when you say, oh, are we ready to have a baby? I don't think you're ever really ready to have a baby. Those <laughs> of us have had babies and then somehow you, you muddle through it. Um, how important is it in terms of support structure for you, you know, as leader of the opposition and two young children? And what sort of support structure do you have around you to be able to, to do what you do? It's a bit fluid, to be honest. It's mostly my husband and I supported with our family. We're really lucky that we've got family that live not too far away and they help a lot with the kids. But it it is very messy at times and I've taken Hudson with me into the parliament for large parts of his life already because he's too little for me to want to leave him with anybody else at this stage. So I'm lucky that he's a pretty placid little baby, which means that he's been happy just to snuggle in to a carry pack or a front pouch and have a little sleep while I'm talking in the parliament. But I have to say that it's hard. It's been much harder than we probably anticipated and me is at kindergarten and does it one day of childcare but the rest of the time it's a huge juggle and I really feel for people who don't have family to support them when they've got young children because without our parents being there to help us I don't really know how we'd make it work. Mm. I remember someone saying to me when my son was a little younger saying, oh, you know, you make it look really easy. And I said to them, actually, it's just all finely sticky taped together. And if you just pull one little piece off, it will all fall apart pretty quickly. So <laughs> yeah. I think it's a timely reminder for anyone who's out there, men or women balancing work and family, that it's very difficult for all of us. Yeah, it is really hard. And I think that's one of the things that I'm really mindful of that publicly, I guess there could be a perception that, I've got it all together. And look, here I am in the parliament carrying the baby. He's so well behaved and what a role model for other women to go back to work so soon and to be able to do it all. It's really not that easy. And I'm really mindful that I might be projecting on other families or, you know, this unrealistic expectation about how they can have it all. And I think too often, particularly women our generation, aspire to have it all. But no one really talks about how tough it can be. 
and how hard it can be. And I think we're fearful of doing that because we don't want to discourage other women from aspiring to that. But at the same time, one of the things I've learned that's really important is to be honest about it because if you don't tell other women what it's really like and they find themselves in the same situation you're in but they think they're handling it so much worse than what you led them to believe it was going to be like, they can feel like a failure. And I don't want anyone to feel like that because that's not how they should feel. It's just life. Yes, indeed. Would you encourage younger people to follow a career in politics? Yes, I would. We need those young people to think that it is a pathway for them, but it does need diversity and it does need those, you know, enthusiastic, committed young people coming through who've got energy and drive and who are motivated and who are thinking about things differently than how I'm thinking about them or other people are thinking about them because you do get a little bit stuck in the way that you think sometimes that you do things because that's how they've always been done and that was certainly something I challenged as a young person coming into politics and that's I think the opportunity I see for young people is they're not afraid to challenge the norm and that's a good thing. Mm. It's still, in my view, a profession that is highly unrepresented by females. Was it tough initially as a young female going in? And do you think that we're changing that for females or is there more work to be done? I think it's changed even in the 11 years that I've been in politics. I think about what it was like when I was campaigning. I didn't have a profile, so I did a lot of door knocking. And particularly older people would say to me, oh, it's it's nice to see you having a go dear just out of school or well, what does your husband think about this does he know that you're campaigning I mean I wasn't married at the time but I suppose those gender stereotypes were very strong for some people but in 11 years that I've been in the Tasmanian parliament we've seen a significant change there's equal representation now of women and men and in the Labor caucus, we have more women than men. And I think that the Labor Party has done a good job of this because it's really provided opportunities for women to stand for election in winnable seats. And it's resulted in uh, greater representation of women in politics, both at a state and a federal level. But there are still things that need to change. And I think about things that happened in 2016 when my daughter was born. And at that time, the standing orders in the parliament would have meant that she was treated as a stranger in the floor on the parliament, which meant she wouldn't be allowed in the parliament. Um, the speaker would have had to have kicked her out. So we had to change the rules so that if I needed to bring her into the parliament for any reason, so I had to vote or speak on a bill, that she was allowed to be there which is good because obviously my son's benefited from that now because he does come into the parliament, but there's still restrictions around that. So he's only allowed into the parliament if he is asleep or if he's feeding. So, you know, and only up until the age of 12 months old. <laughs> so it's still quite a restricted uh, approach to allowing children uh, into that workplace. And I'm the first woman that's been able to do that in the Tasmanian Parliament in the lower house. My colleague, Jo Seeker, was able to do that in the upper house with her little daughter. So we've had a few changes that have taken place just in the last couple of years in Tasmanian Parliament. They've certainly made it easier for women to bring their children with them to work, which has certainly made a difference for us. I mean, that's a positive impact of change that you're demonstrating through your role. Are you seeing as a party increased levels of participation even in Labor Party forums, which is kind of the grassroots, you know, area to get start your political career, essentially. Are you seeing more women participating at that level 
there are a lot of changes that happened before I came on the scene that I have benefited from. So it was the 1990s when the Australian Labor Party first started to change the rules around affirmative action. And it's as a result of the work of those women at national conferences that we have opportunities for women, not just in elected positions to parliament, but also across the organisation of the party too. So rank and file members who might seek to be the chair of a platform committee or to be elected to our governing board, for instance, can put their hand up, but there's always got to be observance of the affirmative action rule. So it's got to be 50-50. We provide equal opportunity for women and men. And that has resulted in a huge change, I'd say, in the organisation and the opportunities afforded to women because they get there on merit. And I really get grumpy when people say that quotas or affirmative action isn't really representative of what's going on in organisation because those women only got there because of those rules. Those women are getting there on their merit. But because a lot of women still feel they lack the confidence to put themselves forward, what this does is gives them a bit of a hand. So once they're in those positions, they fly and they do really well. But I think without affirmative action uh, and those rules being in place, a lot of women wouldn't put their hand up because they don't think that they're qualified enough or they're ready enough or they're confident enough or they're going to be able to do the same kind of job as somebody else. Mm. And I think one of the great things the organisation has done is to challenge that by giving them a chance in the first place and they always prove themselves to be worthy. In your observations, how can we translate that into a corporation like I work in? It's hard to to make impactful change. So um, what's your Mm. view around that and what can we learn? And we're talking only about gender diversity too. Yeah, we are. There's quite a lot of other diverse elements of our community. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And I, that's the next challenge for the Labor Party. You know, we've done quite well when it comes to gender diversity, but for uh, us to be representative of the community, we have to do a lot better. Mm. When it comes to organisations, the evidence is, if you want to be really blunt about it, it's in the, the profit that you can make. You know, we know that when boards have greater representation of women, they make more money. So... There's one really crude way to look at how organisations might look to shift their practices, uh, especially if they're profit-driven enterprises. But generally speaking, I think one of the benefits I've seen from having women represented is their contribution is different from their male counterparts. They've got a different way, generally speaking, of assessing problems and providing solutions different lived experiences, particularly um, if they've got caring responsibilities, which we know women still um, have primary caring responsibilities, predominantly more so than their male counterparts, whether it's for their parents or a child. Bringing those experiences to an organisation can be really powerful, especially if the organisation you're working for is trying to um, sell products to that demographic or they're trying to understand a particular demographic having that particular demographic represented at the table or having someone with lived experience is incredibly important because they give you an insight that you are completely missing without them yes I don't, I don't know if this is a question or a comment actually but I suppose in a way I'm now thinking through this conversation is what can we do to support the broader communities those other diverse groups to almost fast track 
the same opportunities for them as opposed to the time it's taken for women to well I mean there's still issues for women but I feel like we've progressed probably even since I started in the workplace. I mean in the Labour Party we've started to think about how do we encourage greater um, participation from people from the LGBTIQ plus community, our Indigenous Australians and people with disability whether it be through um, different forums that we hold so we can in the first place hear their voices, but secondly, providing dedicated positions for people from those community to be elected to conference, for instance. So they actually are guaranteed a seat at the table. So I think those are the different sorts of things that we're looking to do as an organisation or already doing where other businesses could look to that and learn from. And there's probably great examples already in practice it's just a banner of sharing those examples so that we become more familiar with them and that's I think the best way for us to learn to then to change our practice so it's it's more inclusive. You know I've been reflecting on my own leadership journey and the things that I was too afraid to do or say and you know how do I create an environment where younger leaders don't feel that way so for for us we're doing a lot of work around how do we create that culture where people feel that they can bring ideas to the table to innovate experiment and if you fail then we learn from the failure. There's a pivotal moment that I've think back on I was nominated to participate in an exchange program and travel to America with some other MPs from a diverse range of different political backgrounds and it was the first time that I sat around a table with other people who listened to what I had to say and took it seriously being given the opportunity to share how you think or feel about something and for it to be accepted and legitimized is so affirming and it built my confidence in a way that nothing else had up until that point, such that it really was the catalyst for me to say, yes, I want to run for parliament. Because what I found through that process is that when I said something, people listened and they took me seriously, where previous to that, I thought, who would want to hear anything I had to say? What can I possibly say that's different to anybody else? Why would my view matter? And if I say it, is it just going to make me feel so embarrassed that I'd wish I'd never said it in the first place? And I just couldn't agree more that if you give people the opportunity to share their views and you validate them, that it could change their life. Because I know for me, it was transformative. Mm, Yes. It's really interesting what you say, because I think it ties in nicely to the next question around leadership. How important is leadership? What's great leadership for you? I think I'm still learning that, to be frank. (laughs) There are some days when I think, gee, um, I could have done that 50 million times better. (laughs) It was a really poor leader today. Uh, And other days where I think I helped to guide people and we got a great outcome. I also think that leadership for me as a woman is different than probably how other people might perceive it. Because for me, leadership requires compassion and empathy It requires the ability to listen and to allow people to hopefully uh, share their thoughts in such a way that you can build consensus. And that's certainly how I try to lead my team. And that's why I looked to people that I admire who I think have done a great job of leading. And I'll use political examples because they're some of the ones that are most relevant for me, but Julia Gillard, who was a terrific negotiator, 
school communicator managed in a really difficult circumstance to achieve some excellent legislative reforms. So she was not only good at her job in terms of leading a team, but she was effective as well. I find people like Jacinda Ardern as a leader also really inspiring Yes, because she leads in a way that's incredibly empathetic. She's a terrific communicator. You know, she's led a government that's been a minority government, that she's had to deal with people from different parties and make sure they all come together and have a collective purpose they work towards achieving. And I think that's a good example of what I think it takes to work in politics. You don't get to set the agenda and just run with it without considering input from other people because we're elected by our community. And the community is pretty diverse, so you do need to be able to think about all the feedback that you get and understand what's the most important thing for the majority of people in order to to take forward as you know policy or um, legislation to parliament. But at the same time, we have to be really mindful of minority groups because, as we've discussed, often they don't have a seat at the table. So you just can't ignore the quiet voices. And I think that's what I see, you know, Jacinda and Julia did really well, is that they listen to all the voices, not just the loud voices. We've seen in federal politics a number of um, serious incidents specifically around women. Do you think that Parliament can regain the trust of Australians in terms of the way that that's been dealt with? And what can corporations or businesses learn from what, politics have experienced recently there's no doubt there's a huge trust deficit at the moment and we have a big job ahead of us to regain people's trust and I'm disappointed to see how it's been dealt with by our federal leaders because there are some issues that have come up where I think there's a really obvious response and I haven't seen that obvious response So I think that just leads to people feeling disenchanted and a little bit disheartened in politics. I think the only way we regain that trust is by living up to the standards people expect of us, whether you're a leader in politics or a leader in the community. The community does have different expectations that it places on people in those roles and that any time those expectations are broken, there's a lot of um, rebuilding trust work that has to take place. But also there's an expectation that you won't break that trust. Or if it is broken, that it's about setting out a really clear pathway for how you're going to fix that, being transparent about it, acknowledging it if you failed, and then making sure that what you do next is he's actually acting on what you say you're going to do. I think a lot of the time, People feel rightly peeved off when politicians especially espouse rhetoric, but they don't follow through with the action. Leadership can be quite isolating. How do you seek counsel or guidance in those moments when you feel you're alone and you've got to make a decision that is potentially impactful or you just don't know what to do? I certainly have them many times. I think I'm getting better at it. I feel like when I first took on the role of the leader of the Labour Party, for some reason, I also had this preconceived idea that as a leader, I needed to be able to 
make the ultimate decision myself. I'd certainly listen to other people, but because I was ultimately accountable at the end of the day, that I should be the ultimate decision maker as well. I've become a lot better now at seeking guidance and advice from other people. And I wish I'd done that sooner. I, I wish I'd thought that it was okay to do that. I, I think I thought it was a bit of a weakness mm. or somehow because I was already feeling, you know, I was faking it till I was making it. I was feeling a little bit insecure about being a leader that if I asked too many people for help and assistance, that was somehow proof that I wasn't really up to the challenge. And I don't know why I felt like that. And I'm glad that I feel differently now, that I recognise that as a leader, it's actually pretty sensible to seek guidance or counsel from other people who've been there and done it before or just people you trust who know you're in your corner mm. because that's going to help you not only make a better decision but to be a better decision maker because you will not be completely drained every time you make one of those big decisions because you haven't made it by yourself. Mm. Rebecca, thank you so much. It's been a delight to speak to you and wish you all the very best. Yeah, thanks. It's been so nice to talk to you. This was such a fantastic conversation and I absolutely loved Rebecca's honesty and ability to be so open about the realities of being a working mum of two in politics. There was so much I took away from speaking with Rebecca, but the one thing that really struck a chord with me was the power of validating others' voices. She found it so affirming and it built her confidence in a way nothing else had. Just imagine what it would be like if this was the norm in teams and interactions outside of the workplace. But I'd love to know, what did you take away? You can respond by leaving a review or if you're listening on Spotify, you can answer via the Q&A section in the app. If you found this conversation to be as helpful and inspiring as I did, please remember to share it with friends and colleagues. You just never know who else it might positively impact. Next week, I'm speaking to another one of our wonderful leaders at Accolade Wines, Gillian Lapsley. As always, links and resources can be found in the show notes. Until then, thanks for listening and take care.